have you ever thought about sin in a way of like what all it affects in your life? Uh, and, and maybe even in the sense of, um, I mentioned a flat tire earlier, but was the flat tire a result of sin? Like did that nail that went into that flat tire on the church bus, was that the result of sin? Uh, the flu, is that the result of sin? Um, tornadoes, hurricanes, is that the result of sin? Uh, torn carpet or carpet choice, is that the result of sin? Um, for, for some of you, like, you know, uh, your spouse, was that the result of sin that you chose that person, <laughs> you know, or, or vice versa? I mean, have you ever thought about those things? Like, what all does sin affect? I mean, if the wages of sin is death, um, and we're ultimately, you know, living for life, what all does sin affect? Where all do we see it? I mean, I think these are questions that we need to think thoroughly about. We, we began last week talking about, and I, I think I failed to mention this to you, but there are Throughout all of our prophets, or all of the prophets that we have in the in Scripture, uh, particularly with the minor prophets, uh, we we come across these five major themes that are within these prophets. You could probably, I mean, you can write these down. I, I preached one of them last week. I'm going to preach uh, the the next four uh, over the next four weeks. But these major themes of God as a sovereign God. Uh, today we're going to talk about that that in, there's an in, inevitable judgment of sin. That God has an amazing love that God is the one who gets us right, and that there is a promise of a coming Messiah. And so we see those five things as a theme throughout all the prophets. As they're preaching and proclaiming God's word, they're talking about those things, that God is Lord over all, he's sovereign, that there's an inevitable judgment for sin, that sin needs to be judged, and so with that there's this coming judgment that God has an amazing love that we do not deserve. We are unworthy of it, but he still gives it to us. That God is the one who gets us right. Uh, it's not on our own account or our own accord, but he's the one that's doing it. And then finally, the prophets, all the prophets talk about a coming Messiah, someone who's going to come and save, someone who's going to come and rescue them. And so we're seeing that play out through the uh, through the prophet Zechariah also. We're seeing these, these themes uh, play out in that. So it's a minor prophet, that's why I've said it before, a minor prophet with some major themes, uh, even in our own life. Like those five things that I just mentioned, we, we can still see today. Like we're seeing God is sovereign even though in the midst of sin like we we tend to you know be blinded or have a blurred vision on that um, it, we see that there needs to be judgment of sin I mean some of you are familiar with this like I mean you're like me and I've, I've talked about playing the game of judging others you know I love to, to stop at the stoplight and just like begin like looking at the person next to us and say like what, what's their story who are they you know what all have they done wrong and begin judging them so we want sin to be judged I mean right am I, am I right on this personally when we think about the abortion stuff that we've talked about for the past three weeks or so, assisted suicide. I mean, all these things were like, we want judgment for sin. We want sin to be judged. If I could just be real personal for a moment, I just don't want my sin to be judged. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Like, Lord, judge everyone else's sin. Just ignore mine. Like, let's, let's not do that. So we have that. Then we have God's amazing love. Do we not see that being played out today? Like, if you know the story of the cross, if you know the story of our Christ Jesus, then you know about amazing love and an ultimate kind of thing. But then we're seeing daily people walking alongside of us, offering love. Maybe you've even felt that moment where, you know, I don't think anyone loves me. But then God brings to your, to your attention through his word, maybe, or through one of his messengers, how much he loves you and how that changes your whole perspective on things, on, on all of life. We see, we're seeing how God is the one who's getting us right or righteous through his son Jesus, that we don't 
on our own. We don't amount to anything necessarily. Uh, we can't uh, work for our salvation, though we want to earn it so badly. Uh, you see this played out in kids all the time. They want to earn uh, their parents' love or satisfaction. Uh, you see this in the foster care system a lot with kids who, are, who have been abandoned, uh, kids who have been mistreated, kids who have been uh, just given over to someone else or removed from a home for whatever reason. We see them desperately searching for a right life, a, a true love. We see, we see all these things happening. That's when we say as the church, like all these things are going to be filled in the coming Messiah or the Messiah who's came and is going to come again, Jesus. We're saying all those things, God getting us right, us seeing love and mercy, uh, us seeing the judgment of sin, us seeing God as Lord of all. We're saying all of that is wrapped up in, in Jesus. And that's why as the church belonging to Jesus, we say all of life is about, is about Jesus. So we're going to continue talking through those five main points, and then after that, uh, we'll we'll look at the end of, of Zechariah and see how uh, see how it really hammers home about who Christ is uh, in regards to prophecy and what we we can expect for him to uh, to, to do and, and or continue to do. I don't know if you've seen this or not, and I know it's really hard to see, but back in the back in the foyer, uh, there's this little paper. Maybe it was in some of your Sunday school classrooms or not. It looks like a comic strip. On the back of it is a timeline kind of a, of the Old Testament, Old Testament history. It could be helpful for you. So on the back, it kind of tells you like where in in, in history was this particular book written, kind of what was going on in those times. And on the front of it, this little comic strip here, uh, it kind of gives you an idea of, of the book of uh, Zechariah, uh, of, of what the prophet was trying to, or how God was using this prophet to really uh, reach the people belonging to God, to convict them of their sin, to show them uh, you know, what, what uh, God is expecting of them. So it may be helpful for you or to you to, to have this and to see this. And I know it's really small, uh, and, and, and you know in our world today we have these smartphones where you can zoom in. You can't do this on this. Okay, you cannot zoom in, so don't even try. Uh, but maybe get a magnifying glass or whatever. So, so if you have this paper, um, in the middle of the, of the paper, there's uh, two things, two dreams or visions that Zechariah gets. and They're labeled one and two. And those are the two that we're going to talk about this morning. And how they're connected. So we're gonna we're gonna reference for your reference as you're studying this week. You can kind of see that because this is what I know, and I'm not like probably not like former pastors or preachers that you've sat under. Like I would I would rather be a lot of do a lot of repetition, uh, trying to teach you well so that you can know this well because this is what I believe. I believe you're gonna be persecuted even more. I believe our culture is closing in around us. Uh, I think that you're going to be in more and more, even though you're already in it, maybe you've forgotten, but more and more spiritual battles. And with that, I, I need you to be prepared for that. If I'm going to shepherd you, I need you to be prepared how to, to put, where to put your trust in, how to handle the spiritual battles that are coming, that are coming your way. We are not in the world that you used to live in. We're in a different world, so to speak. Uh, your worldview may have to change quite a bit. And so uh, hopefully this morning you'll kind of see those things. So we ended last week uh, from Zechariah 1 uh, all the way through verse 6 uh, with this call to making sure that we understand that God is Lord over all, that he's a sovereign God, that he's, he's reigning sovereignly over the entire world, over all of history. Uh, and so with that, we ended with that, and we ended with, in verse 6, the people, were with they responded with repentance. 
So they responded with turning around, leaving their own ways, leaving their own selves, and turning towards God, repenting, and uh, coming into right relationship with, with the Father, recognizing that the ways that they had walked in, or their fathers, have, uh, fathers had walked in, or their ancestors had walked in, the ways that they were walking were not the correct ways or the right ways, and so they had to repent of that and turn around. And I know we use that word often, but I think even as a believer, it's important for us to repent, to recognize where, where we've been convicted of sin and saying, God, no longer in this process of sanctification, no longer do I want to live my life according to my own standards, my own ways, my own uh, trusting my own abilities or, or my own wisdom or experience, but instead I want to fully trust in you. So I'm going to repent of my ways daily and look and turn and turn to you. And so then we come to verses 7 through um, 21, where we have these two kind of visions that Zechariah has. And within these two visions, there's some follow-up or some more in-depth about this later uh, in, in the book of Zechariah here. So, so if you want to write this or you can use the little paper I already gave you, uh, verses 8 through 17 also correspond with, with chapter 6, verses 1 through 8. And then verses 18 through uh, 21 also correspond with chapter 5, verses 5 through 11. So I'm going to reference those here in a moment um, as we kind of look through that. I'm going to read a lot of scripture because I think it's necessary for us. So you can kind of get the whole story in hopes that we, uh, we gain a, a, a better uh, connection or concept of how terrible sin is, of how it's going to be judged, what all it does to us, and then uh, how we can be uh, living our life in accordance no longer with sin ruling over us, but instead with God ruling over us. I mean, would you agree that when we look around this world today, uh, maybe even from 10 or 15 or 20 years ago, or 60 or 70 or 80 years ago, I mean, it's just not the same. Your context of the world is not the same as it used to be. Uh, what, what we used to see maybe was a more Christian type society, a more cr- Christian type culture, or at least perception of what we perceived was a more Christian uh, society, more Bible belt, uh, more uh, affirmation of maybe somewhat everyone is a believer, or at least everyone knows about the Savior. Um, and I think our, our world has changed Dramatically, I think, and I know I've only been here a, a short time in Lee County, but, but I would assume that even Lee County has changed dramatically in the past 10 years. Lovington itself probably has changed dramatic, dramatically in the last 10 to, to 20 years. And so with that, what, what do we do with this? Uh, where do we turn to? Where, where's our hope going to be? What do we see? Have there been moments in your life that you've even thought, man, we, we're living in a post-Christian world? where it seems as if sin is reigning. I mean, look around, and it looks like sin is ruling and reigning, and these people need to be judged for their sins. Like I mentioned earlier, like let's judge them, let's not judge ourselves, let's instead judge their sin and and point out uh, their brokenness. Do you sense that? Do you sense how often we're seeing sin? You watch the news, you get on Facebook, or whatever the case may be, you read the paper, and we see what it seems like sin ruling and reigning in this world. But it can't be the case, right? Well, we talked about last week that God is sovereign, that he's overall, that he's the Lord of over, over all things. Surely sin is not reigning in this world. Verse 7 of chapter 1 of Zechariah says this, On the 24th day of the 11th month, which is the month of Shabbat, in the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came to the prophet Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, son of Iddo, saying, I saw in the night, and behold, a man riding on a red horse. He was standing among the myrtle trees in the glen or the ravine 
or the valley, and behind him were red, sorrel, and white horses. All right, so we have this crazy vision that begins to happen with Zechariah. Zechariah, who this book is named after, is not. This book is not about him. This book is about God, and God begins to uh, give a word to Zechariah, and and in this case, it comes through a vision of some sort, and he sees in this vision. Uh, uh, one person particularly on a red horse and then some other people with him or some other beings with him uh, in this low place of myrtle trees in this ravine and they're seated on horses. So I know already Gerald's engaged because we're talking about horses and so uh, so we continue on. Now there's, there's significance in a few things here. Red, when we see the word red or when we hear this color red, it usually brings war. It means war. And so, so it's something uh, significant that's happening here. When we see white, normally it means peace. It means uh, you know tranquility or something like that. But then we have this horse, these horses that are sorrel, kind of a mixed color, not necessarily a red or a white, but a mixture between the two. So we could we could assume that the symbolism here is that uh, this horse may be representing uh, not necessarily war, but not peace, just a just a time of being a time, not a time of war, not a time of peace. When we see myrtle, oftentimes in the Old Testament we'll see uh, myrtle groves or myrtle trees. This represents often Israel, and I believe in this in this particular passage it's also representing Israel. Israel, in this case, is in a glen or a ravine or a valley, a place of lowness, uh, lowliness, a place of uh, maybe a, a desolate place, even a place uh, of, of a place of humiliation, even. Okay, so we kind of have this setting. And behind him were red, sorrel, and white horses. And then verse 9 says this, Then I said, What are these, my Lord? And the angel who talked to me said to me, I will show you what they are. And so the man who was standing among the myrtle trees answered, These are, the, are they whom the Lord has sent to patrol the earth. So the Lord is sending out these messengers, uh, angels, to go and patrol the earth, the entire earth, to see what's going on. Uh, why is it it seems like my people are, are acting and responding this way, uh, maybe a little bit mistreated, maybe in a place of lowliness, a desolate place, a place of humiliation? If that's the case, how's the rest of the world, how's the rest of the world going? So, so what we're seeing here, and, and I think we've brought this point before to you, uh, we, we keep, I keep mentioning the word worldview. What we're seeing here is we're, the Lord is sending out these, this group to go and patrol the earth to gain a world view of what's going on in the entire world. The Lord sent out these scours to see the state of the world, to view what's going on with the rest of the nations. Uh, didn't God already know this? I mean, if he's sovereign, why is he sending out these messengers? Surely he already knows the state of the world. But the people belonging to God had been captive, right? Captive to someone else's rule someone else's views, someone else's teachings, someone else's commandments, etc. And so the people belonging to God needed to know what the rest of the world was like. Their worldview was small and narrow. They thought that th what they were experiencing was the only thing that was being experienced in the world. And with this worldview, this narrow worldview that had grown small, uh, with that, even their view of God had grown small. And so God is bringing up a point here. I have control over the entire earth. I can send messengers wherever I want, scouters wherever I want. And I know the view of the entire world. I know the state of the entire world. A worldview is, is basically a, a particular philosophy of life or a concept of of the world like what is the overall view of the world think for a second if you're in law enforcement 
Maybe you're a police officer or sheriff's deputy or, or something. You're in law enforcement. And maybe even your particular assignment is to, uh, to deal with a, a particular set of crimes. Maybe homicides or murders or, or some kind of sexual assault or something. And in your worldview, because you're spending so much time and you're an expert in this area, you begin to look at people uh, through the lens of your expertise, through the lens of what you feel like is the entire world. This must be how the world is. And so you shape your view on the entire world by the 1% that you're seeing. I, I see this 1%, and so I, I just assume that the rest of the world's like that. And maybe you struggle at home because uh, you see the world 1%, and you come home and you just expect your family to be like the rest of the world. I mean, even in our world today, within the church, we have this too. We, begin, we become experts on what the world looks like or how the world is. And when someone new comes into the church, we just assume them to be like the rest of the world. I don't know you. I don't know who you are. I know nothing about you. So I'm just going to assume through my worldview and through my lens of the world, or whatever has shaped that, I'm just going to assume that you're like the rest of the world. Our worldview shapes our, our big questions. It gives us answers to the big questions in life, like where did life come from? Uh, how did how was it created? Uh, who's in control of it? I mean, all these things, our worldview helps to shape that. It informs us, our experiences of the world around us. It begins to form and shape what we believe about all all of life. The hope is that God's word is what's shaping the people belonging to God. That God's word is what's giving us a world view when it comes to his sovereignty, when it comes to even the judgment of sin. We have to look at the life, we have to look at all of life through the lens of God's word, letting it shape our world view, letting it determine our opinions, letting it solve problems for us, letting it uh, determine how we think about abortion, euthanasia, same-sex relationships, environmental ethics, economic policies, public education, so on. I mean, it must be the thing that shapes all of our life. We must allow God's word. It's why Zechariah has said it over and over again. The word of the Lord came to me. It's what's shaping my world view. Our worldview often shapes our entire lives. It shapes how we react or interact with everything. We'll play a little game here for a moment. I'm going to give you a word. It's called word association. I'm going to give you a word. And I want you to think about, as soon as I give you that word, what's the first thing that pops into your mind? So let's start with an easy one, short sermon. What's the first thing that popped into your mind? Probably the word amen, right? I mean, like, short sermon, all right, amen. Uh, what about how our world has, has shaped your thoughts concerning teachers? I mean, if you only heard reports of negative reports on teachers, public school teachers, your worldview of teachers may be different. Or maybe you had a terrible teacher growing up, and you just assumed that all teachers were the same, or, or pastors for that matter, or waitresses, or whatever the case may be. What about police or law enforcement? What's the first thing that came to your mind, or first word or first thought that came to your mind? How about this word, rap? What's the first thing that came to your mind? Christmas, right? It wasn't music. <laughs> what about country? What's the first thing that came to your mind? Some of you thought about country music. No, it shouldn't have been that. It's maybe something else. What about the word, this is going to be a little bit more difficult. What about the word Muslim? It's the first word that came to your, to your mind. I mean, have we not been shaped by past experiences? Don't we have a worldview of who Muslims are, all of them? Well, you're all the same, right? How about millennials? How's that been shaped? What about senior adults? 
What about good-looking 37-year-old men? Like what comes to your mind? So our worldview begins to shape us. Uh, it begins to uh, shape our thoughts, how we react, how we interact. We, we, become, we become very narrow-minded sometimes. We think this is how all of the world is. Well, I think that we have to allow two things here. We have to allow God's Word to shape our view of the world, okay, of everyone in it, allow God's Word to be shaping that. And then also with sin, we must allow God's Word to shape our view on sin. I mean, as I mentioned earlier, and I say it jokingly, sarcastically, but you know it's from my heart. When I say I want sin to be judged, I just don't want my own sin to be judged. I'm saying that wholeheartedly. Like, God, please judge the sin of the entire world except for mine. Like, let me be exempt in some way, in some fashion. Was well, that how God's word? Well, is that what it says? Or what am I doing to allow my shaping of my view of sin? I mean, the Bible is clear on this. There needs to be there needs to be judgment. There needs to be judgment for sin. And so we 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 must become experts in a sense in God's word. We must be good Bereans and study His words so that we can be experts on what He desires of all of 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 all of our life, but all of life in in general. We we must not just choose our own experiences to shape how we view all of life. I mean, if I viewed all of church in accordance to my view of Oak Street Baptist Church, the church I grew up in, this church is wrong. There are several things about this church that are wrong. But also there are several things about Oak Street Baptist Church that are wrong. I mean, number one, we didn't have orange carpet. So obviously you guys are wrong, right? Number two, we didn't have a young pastor. He was old. So there, we need to have an old pastor if we're going to be right, if I'm shaping the way church should look like in my worldview, in my worldview of what church should look like. We also should have an organist who gives us bubblegum after every service because that's what happened at Oak Street Baptist. So I don't know what's going on here, Francis, but we need to do something a little different if we're going to be right. But are those things really what God's church should look like? Well, how do we begin to shape that? How do we shape our view of church? How do we shape our view of politics? How do we shape our view of marriage, of families? How do we shape our view of how to deal with the foster care system or abortion? How do we shape our view with how to deal with the rest of the world? How do we shape our view of, of, of what, um, what decisions we make uh, in, in, uh, in all of life? What, what is it that's shaping our decisions? What is it shaping our, our worldview? My hope is, my hope is that Christ is the one that's working in us, using his words to shape us. I mean, think about where your data is coming from to determine your worldview. I mean, who is it or what is it that's influencing your whole worldview, particularly your your worldview about sin? I mean, is it like a president would say, is it fake news? You know, fake news? Is it fake news? Is it Hollywood? Is it country music? I mean, think about this. Is it some writer or reporter that you've never met before, but you faithfully read or listen to or watch every week that's shaping your worldview? I mean, I hope not. I hope as followers of Jesus, Jesus is the one that's shaping your worldview, shaping your view of sin, shaping your view of God, shaping your view of your life. 
that we're studying his word, allowing his word to shape everything about us. Because let me just tell you, we can, we can completely justify every one of our actions when we use our own worldviews to shape us. I can justify every sin I've ever committed. I could justify every sin that I want to commit because I'm good at changing my worldview. And I would assume that there's some of you in the room this morning that are, this, that are very similar to myself. That we're going to justify our actions according to how we shape, shape our worldview. I mean, think about this. Again, word association. What's the first thing that comes to your mind? When I say the word sin... What was your first thought? Did your mind go to someone else? Did your mind go to something specific? Did your mind go to the cross? Did your mind go to the empty grave? Did your mind go to Jesus? Did your mind go to a picture of someone that you know is a sinner? Did your mind go to yourself? I mean, think about what is shaping your quick reaction to that one word, sin. What is sin? How does it affect your daily life? What will, our, what will the future of sin be? Does your sin affect me? Does my sin affect you? Does the sin of the nation affect individuals? Does the sin of the world affect individuals? What is it that's shaping us in our answers to those questions? So the Lord sent out these scouters to check out and see what the state of the world was, to view what was going on with the rest of the nations. Why did God do this? Again, He already knew, right? He wanted the people to see He's in control. He wanted the people to see that he knows things. That he can send out people by his power. He is the Lord of hosts, the Lord of armies. He's the Lord over all. So he'll send out scouters to go and check and see what's going on. That they, that they may no longer have a narrow view of their own life. That they may not be pointing fingers and say, these people, these people, these people, but instead may look introspectively and say, what about, what about me? God wanted to send someone to measure and prepare the world for the way it's supposed to be. Turn to Zechariah chapter 6, 1 through 8. I'll read real quickly. Again, I lifted my eyes and I saw, behold, four chariots came out from heaven, two mountains, and the, and the mountains were mountains of bronze. The first chariot had red horses, the second black horses. Verse 3 says, the third white horses, and the fourth chariot dappled horses, all of them strong. Then I answered and said to the angel who talked to me, What, what are these, my Lord? And the angel answered and said, these are going out to the four winds of heaven after presenting themselves before the Lord of all the earth. The chariot with the black horses goes towards the north country. The white ones goes after them, and the dappled ones go towards the south country. And when the strong horses came out, they were impatient to go and patrol the earth. And he said, go, patrol the earth. And so they patrolled the earth. Then he cried to me, behold, those who go toward the north country have set my spirit at the rest of the north country. So he sent out these these scours to go and see what's, what is it that's going, that's going on. Back to chapter 1. Back to chapter 1, verse 10 says this. The man who was standing among the myrtle trees answered, These are they whom the Lord has sent to patrol the earth. And the answer to the angel of the Lord, who was standing among the myrtle trees and said, We have patrolled the earth, and behold, the earth remains at rest. So according to these that scouts that the Lord has sent out, the rest of the world, all the other nations, except for the nation that belongs to God, the rest of the world is at peace, is tranquil, is at rest, as if nothing is going on. I mean, have you had a moment ever in your life where you've looked at a sinner, an unrepentant, a, a sinner who is not born again, 
A sinner who's living only for themselves, who knows nothing about salvation, nothing about the Lord, and you've wondered, why is it that this sinner has things going right, and me, a saint, one who has been saved, is having all this misery? In a sense, that's what's happening. Israel, this rescued people, who used to be captive, who used to be exiles, no longer are they captive or exiles, but instead they've been brought back to the place God promised them. And it seems like they're at war. They're not tranquil. They're not at rest. They're not at peace. And yet the rest of the world is. What's, what's going on here? And so they plead with the Lord. Should sin be reigning? Should these nations be the way that they are? Shouldn't something be different, Lord? Have we not prayed that this past month? Oh, Lord, seriously, these things that are going on in our government, in our politics, are these, is this the way it's supposed to be? Surely, God, you're not going to allow sin to reign forever. Verse 12, And the angel of the Lord said, O Lord of hosts, how long will you have no mercy on Jerusalem and the cities of Judah against which you have been angry for 70 years? What a prayer, right? Oh Lord, how long will you have no mercy? It seems as if for 70 years you've been angry with us. When are all these things going to, when are they going to change? I mean, our view of sin should help shape our daily lives, the goals we set, the choices we make, the things we pursue, the friendships we have, etc. The, the report from the patrol is not a good report. These nations who are not people belonging to the Lord, these nations who are not worshiping God, who have no idea of His sovereignty, who have never experienced His redemption or, or His reconciliation, have never experienced His mercy, why are they at peace and we are not? Oh Lord, how long will this be? Will you have mercy on us? You've been angry, it seems like, for 70 years with us. And so how does the Lord respond to this? What is His response to this prayer? But he doesn't answer in specifics. He doesn't say anything about time or when he exact point at the exact point that he will respond to this. He answers with this, verse 13. And the Lord answered gracious and comforting words to the angel who talked to me. The Lord answered with gracious and comforting words. It's interesting because if, if the Lord has been angry, I mean, how many of you in your anger have answered graciously and comforting words? I mean, when you're mad, do you not often say even more angry things? I mean, how many of you at the point or the pinnacle of your fierce anger are going to answer with graciousness and comforting words? So with gracious and comforting words tells us a lot about the Lord's character, about how much He is in control. He talked to me. Verse 14, So the angel who talked with me said to me, Cry out, thus says the Lord of hosts, I am exceedingly jealous for Jerusalem and for Zion. So I know you've heard it said before that we have a jealous God. Well, why is he jealous? We'll get to that in a moment. And I'm exceedingly angry with the nations that are at ease. For a while I was angry, but a little while they furthered the disaster. Okay, let's begin backwards here. How are they furthering the disaster? What is the disaster? The disaster is that God is not being worshipped. That God is not receiving the glory. The disaster is that they have separated themselves from God. That they're ruling over themselves. That they're attaching themselves with idols of this world. Seeking comfort in things not from God, but in things of themselves or things of this world. They're attaching themselves to sin and saying, let's let sin reign because it feels good or it seems good. 
And so they're furthering the disaster, living a life of what seems like ease. And so God says, I'm jealous for my people. I'm jealous. I'm angry with the world. I will cast judgment upon sin. I will act upon uh, in a righteous way according to what needs to or what must happen. So the Lord's response to the to the statement of, oh Lord, how long, is a response of jealousy, of anger, plus mercy and comforting words. Jealousy from God is a result of God's people being unfaithful and the world being broken. So God's people and the rest of the world have been unfaithful to God. And so in that, his jealousy and anger burns within him. And so he offers not his wrath at this moment, but instead he offers mercy and comforting words. When we turn to idols instead of him, we, we as, in a sense, are distancing ourselves from him and causing further disaster for ourselves. When we worship something other than him, including self, his jealousy burns for us. His anger is fierce. And he answers, instead of with wrath, he answers with mercy and comforting words. I mean, the character of God is something that cannot even be, can't be comprehended. A God who looks at his people and says, you deserve wrath, yet I'm going to give you mercy and comfort. So, so basically, God's jealousy flows out or springs out of his love for, redeemed, for his redeemed ones. Because here's what sin does. As it furthers us and creates more disaster, it separates us from God. It steals from his glory. It sabotages our life and it ultimately kills us. And so God, in his mercy, in his comfort, in his desire to, uh, to love on his redeemed ones, he sends Jesus, who reconciles us, who regenerates or gives us new life, who redeems us, and ultimately gives us life and life eternal. So we go from a house of sin or ill repute to a temple of his spirit because of God's mercy. God is passionately committed to doing what is right. He is passionately committed to what is rightfully his. And so with that, we understand that God is a jealous God. He's burning with fierce anger. There is judgment for sin. Turn to chapter 5 and look at this. Chapter 5 verses uh, verses 5 through 11 says this. Then the angel who talked with me came forward and said to me, "Lift your eyes and see that is see what is going on." Or that, sorry, and see what this is that is going out. And I said, what is it? And he said, this is the basket that is going out. And he said, this is their iniquity in all the land. This is their problems. This is their sin. This is the thing that's separating. And behold, the, the leaden cover was lifted, and there was a woman sitting in the basket. And he said, this is wickedness. And I'm sorry, women, for that imagery. It's not necessarily you. Don't take it so personal. But in this case, this woman sitting in this basket who is iniquity and wickedness is representing all of Israel. And he thrust her back into the basket and thrust down the leading weight on its opening so it cannot escape. It's captive now inside this basket. In verse 9, Then I lifted my eyes and saw, and behold, two women coming forward. The wind was in their wings. They had wings like the, the wings of a stork, and they lifted up the basket be, between earth and heaven. And then I said to the angel who talked with me, where are they taking this basket? And he said to me, to the land of Shinar, to build a house for it. And when this is prepared, they will, they will set the basket down there on its base. 
I mean, this is a, a vision of removal, a vision of separation. I'm going to remove from one place and put in another place. A, a vision of captivity, a, a vision of exile. Israel and their sins separated them, exiled them into another place, and the Lord removed them from the place that they were supposed to be in, removing them because of their sin, because of their iniquity, because of their, because of their self-worship, we'll say, removed them and made them captives of somewhere else. And this is what sin does to us, and it must be, it must be judged. And the only person that can judge that is the Lord. God's glory cannot be shared Worship of him must be of him and him alone. Affection and devotion to him must be of him and him alone. So God's holy jealousy springs up from his great love and unfaltering desire to have an exclusive relationship with those he has delivered and redeemed as his own. I mean, he's a merciful God who looks at what is rightfully his and says, this, this is mine, I've purchased it with, this, with the blood of my son even. And so with that, this belongs to me. And anything that tries to separate us must be removed. I mean, do we not hear that in marriage ceremonies quoted from Jesus? Uh, what God has brought together, binded together, let no one try and separate. I mean, this is what sin tries to do. Sneak back in and separate us from the right relationship between us and the Father. Verse 15 again of Zechariah chapter 1. And I'm exceedingly angry with the nations that are at ease. For while I was angry but a little while, they furthered the, the disaster. Therefore, thus says the Lord, I have returned to Jerusalem with mercy. My house shall be built in it, declares the Lord of hosts. And the measuring line shall be stretched out over all of Jerusalem. Cry out again, thus says the Lord of hosts, my cities shall again overflow with prosperity, and the Lord will again comfort Zion and again choose Jerusalem. And the last part of chapter 1 says this, and I lifted my eyes and I saw, and behold, four horns, meaning this uh, something of power. Horns always represent power. And I said to the angel who talked with me, what are these? And, and he said to me, these are the horns that I have scattered Judah, Israel, and Jerusalem. The powers that brought the, that separated them from the Lord, that scattered them out. And the Lord showed me four craftsmen. And I said, what are those coming to do? And he said, these are the horns that scattered Judah so that no one raised his head. And these have come to terrify them, to cast them down. The horns of the nation who lifted up their horns against the land of Judah to scatter it. So the, these that are against God, including sin, which wants to separate us from God, will be destroyed, will be removed. Our hope is that God, sovereign God, Lord over all God, that he remembers what he has decreed, that he remembers what he has promised, that this God that we serve will judge sin. And if that is true, then we as people belonging to God should stay out of God's anger zone. We should look at living life shaped by his word, his spirit flowing through us, living lives as a temple belonging to him, instead of people living for self. God's mercy spares us from utter destruction. Mercy is God withholding his judgment upon us, the judgment that we deserve because of our sin. And the promise of mercy, in this case through a craftsman, means the work may be slow. It may be careful, meticulous, skilled work, according to the Lord's timing. Remember, Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, the son of Iddo. Zechariah meaning the Lord remembers. Berechiah, that the Lord will bless. Iddo meaning at his time. 
The Lord working His mercy, His comfort at the right, at, at the right time. So sin is something that should not be taken lightly. We don't point and say, all those are sinners, but instead we look at our own life and we say, Lord, what is it I need to be convicted of and repent of? Or what is it that's separating me from you? I know Romans 8.1 says that there, in you there is no condemnation. Now, what a blessing it is that you have removed sin. So let me not let it creep back in. In fact, Zechariah almost mentions these, um, these five promises of salvation. When, he, when we see in verses 7 through, through, uh, through 21 here, we're seeing these five promises that come out. A promise of the mercy of God, a promise of the indwelling of the Spirit of God, a promise to build or restore, a promise of blessing and prosperity, a promise of God's promised protection. We see this throughout Scripture also. We see this promise of salvation that we should hold on to. That when sin has been removed... That we look at, and I think particularly at Romans chapter 8 is the best place to go to. We look at this, Romans 8, 1, Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That is the mercy of God. And God has given us salvation. Romans 8, 9, You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. If, in fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you, anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to Him. It's the indwelling of the Holy Spirit that God would come live inside of us. The mercy of God. Showing up. And that though we are not deserving of this, we are unworthy of this, God gives us mercy instead of destruction. And then He comes and lives with us, among us, His presence, His presence and His Spirit living in us. And then this promise to build or restore, to, to conform really to the image of Christ, Romans 8, 20, uh, verse 29, for those who He foreknow, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son in order that He might be the firstborn among many brothers. That God wants to conform us or transform us into the image of His Son. Sin doesn't do that. Sin conforms you into the image of sin or self. But Christ comes to restore us, to redeem us, and to conform us into the image of Himself. Because He is the only thing that's righteous and holy. The blessing of, of prosperity, which is a weird thing to say, but Christ as the treasure. Romans 8.32 he, he who did not spare His own Son, but gave Him up for all. How will He not also with Him graciously give us all things? That we see that everything that we need comes from God, the Sovereign God. All things in life come from Him. Everything that we need is only coming from Him. And so with that, we make Christ our ultimate treasure. We, we seek to live for Him and Him alone, trusting that He is in control of all things. And the fifth, the kind of the promise of salvation is this, that God promises protection. We think about Romans 8, 35 through 39. He shall, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? And think about what's going on as Zechariah is mentioning to the Israelites. What hope do they have? The, hope, the only hope they have is in the Lord of hosts. So who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? I mean, as it is written, for your, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors. Through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. 
I mean, it's too bad. It's too bad for the for the Israelites in this case. I mean, I know God knows all things. But how much hope is in those verses? I mean, surely God could have gone to the Israelites using Zechariah and said, let me just tell you this. In all these things, we are more than conquerors. Forget about baskets and horns and horses and all those things. Like, listen, you're not going to be separated from God. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Let me just say this to you this morning. I hope that you don't struggle like I do. I really hope that. I pray that you don't. But how often I allow sin and Satan to creep in and change my and shape my view. There are a number of things, God, that can separate me from you. There are a number of things that are going to uh, throw me off track. There are a number of things and not hold to the promise of God. And Christ has saved me. He has removed my sin. No longer I'll stand judged of sin because of Christ. But instead, I'm, I'm no longer separated. I'm in a right relationship with the Father because of the Son. So there will be judgment for sin. But praise God, we have a moment to say sin will no longer reign or rule over me. And I'm going to do whatever it takes, God, for you to use me so that I can make this proclamation known to the entire world of the good news of Christ that Christ has come to save, that he's come to remove sin, to conquer death. Let's pray. God, help us as we seek you to have a right view of sin. The only way, to know I, the only way I know to say is how terrible it is and how it breaks our relationship with you. God, how you promised to judge how you promised to conquer, how you promised to remove, and how you've given us Christ the Messiah, the Savior. So God, with that, as the people belonging to you this morning that are here, God, I pray that you would stir in us. Let's be willing to repent where sin is trying to creep back in and still sabotage our lives separate us from you. Help us to see your mercy, hear your comforting words from Romans chapter 8 or Zechariah chapter 1. Be motivated by you to be conformed to you. So God, help help us. Help us to renew our minds. God, this week as we study your word, let us be shaped by it and by it alone. God, as we wrestle with difficult things, difficult moments, difficult conversations, Christ be the one that's being glorified in those moments. God, help us to respond this morning in a way that's honoring to you. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.